0: One. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you, and now evened, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory. And they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved.
1: Well, good morning. Good morning. Does it surprise you that Willie thinks a 17th century hymn is a modern hymn? <laughs> Thank you very much for making an effort to come out this morning. I appreciate it, particularly Dreek. Thanks uh, also to, to Ben for reading so eloquently. He has, he has a real gift in, in that regard. Um, if you'd be kind enough to keep your Bibles open up that passage, it would be um, helpful let me just uh, pray for us firstly Phil before we uh, some spend some time looking at the word Heavenly Father we thank you for the opportunity that it is to, to gather as your church to open up uh, these ancient words and to listen to what they have to say to us Lord we pray that as we consider this passage that we would be challenged by um, what it would instruct us to do. Lord, that it would speak to our minds and into our hearts. Lord, that it would inform our actions. Lord, that we would come this morning, Father, with expectation to be changed by the word and to worship you for all your goodness to us. In your precious son's name, amen. I've been reading uh, this past week about the chameleon effect. Uh, this is a phenom- phenomenon, if I could even say the word, uh, that finds people mimicking the mannerisms, gestures, accents, or facial expressions of people that they interact with most. And it causes you to make subconscious behavioral changes to match the behavior of those who are in your close social circles or even strangers that you meet for the first time. And the phenomenon gets its name from the chameleon, an animal which of course changes its appearance of its skin to blend into the environment that it finds itself in. Now you may have noticed indeed a friend or a loved one being impacted by this effect Perhaps you've heard them reusing your favorite catchphrase or observed them copying your hand gestures or maybe you've even found yourself doing it from time to time. This is the chameleon effect in action. And it's completely normal. Almost everyone and anyone has done it at some point in their lives. And according to my better half, I'm more susceptible to this than most Apparently, I pick up a Glaswegian twang any time I spend time with my colleagues on the West Coast. Furthermore, when I'm with a particular friend, I end up speaking out the corner of my mouth. That friend wasn't Sean Connery. But whilst this effect is a subconscious action, something that we do unawares, involuntary if you like, we do witness people also making very conscious attempts To mimic someone else's behavior. This past few weeks I've watched part of David Beckham's documentary on Netflix. And in there there are countless examples of this chameleon style behavior. Albeit consciously. You have Beckham for example at a young age trying to mimic the behavior and skill of his footballing heroes. Of Bobby Charlton and Glenn Hoddle. And then as the documentary goes on, you have all of David Beckham's fan base in their hundreds of thousands mimicking his behavior, his accent, his fashion, his mannerism, his knack of taking a free kick, even his countless hairstyles. I didn't fall victim of the latter. Billy Dodd's curtains were good enough for me. But it's that conscious, imitative behavior that we are called to hear In Philippians 3. Not in so far that we would behave in such a way that makes a demigod of any human person, but rather in a way that mimics a life that demonstrates therein the saving grace of Christ and points observers of that life toward heavenly citizenship. That's what this morning is about and its practical implication for you and for me is profound. We're going to break down our text into three points this morning, three positions that we are called to take up, and I'm going to follow them in order of the text as we go through it. The first position that we are to take up is a position of imitating. The second position that we read that we are to take up is a position of waiting. And the third position that we are to take up, the final position is a position of standing firm. Imitate, wait, and stand firm. Position one, imitate. Verse 17 recalls Paul as giving this instruction to readers. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. There are a couple of points in this first half of the verse. Firstly, note that the call given here to the church in this instance in Philippi, but also for us as New Testament readers in Hebron, is to come together as a collective to pursue the art of imitation. Paul says, join together. That's the first part of the instruction. It's a collective response that is to be elicited from us. We are to break down barriers that come between us and we are to unite as one in the act of imitation. This is consistent with all that Paul has written throughout this letter. For remember, previously is called for us to set aside pride, for us to avoid dispute, for us to unite together for the sake of the gospel, for us to strive and strain toward the goal. This is foundational in Paul's message. You can't be an imitator if you're not seeking to do it together. The Christian life doesn't look like you going one way and me going another as we plough our own furrows in dispute with one another. No, the Christian life looks like you and I ploughing together, pulling together. Our shoulders at the wheel for one another. Our bodies, our minds, our spirits bound together for the sake of the gospel. Think of 1 Corinthians 12 and 12. This has been the theme of much of Paul's preaching, that Jew and Gentile, that male and female, that rich and poor, that powerful and lowly would work together for his kingdom. It records him as writing this, For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Therefore, Paul would have it that we would overcome our circumstantial differences and our biases to preach the good news together. And that plays out for us here and now in this church. Church. And the question we should be asking ourselves is what matters of circumstance, what matters of bias come between us as we as a church family seek to serve in unity? What pride and what grumbles, what character traits do we allow to cause interference between the effective togetherness of a relationship in Christ? Have we challenged ourselves truly in our outlook in this regard do we really grasp that our service to his renown is for his glory and not for our credit the second point to note in this first half of verse 17 is that paul isn't being presumptuous when he says follow my example This isn't written out of a big-headedness or a selfish desire to glorify himself. No, rather, this is written from a place where Paul understands that for the gospel to carry any weight, for the truth that he has been entrusted to, to actually live up to reality, that his actions need to be consistent with the message that he is declaring. That the way and his way of living needs to match what he has been talking about. For if it doesn't, then the message of the gospel can be undermined by a lack of commitment to the cause. For it was as much a necessity for Paul to live the kind of Christian life that others could follow as it was for him to preach the pure gospel that those who listened to him could believe. Remember, the people reading this letter didn't have the benefit of the New Testament. They needed demonstrable examples out in front of them that were consistent with the message that they were hearing and Paul held himself up as such an example because of his desire to preach that gospel message with integrity there were many out there it says who would try and model different examples. People, verse 19, whose minds were set on earthly things, whose God was their stomach and their glory, their shame, verse 18. And Paul is saying, don't follow them. Don't follow them. For their ways aren't for your benefit. Their end game is not the glorification of Christ. We, of course, have it differently today. We have the benefit of the New Testament. We can see the whole story front to back and back to front. But in some ways it makes the onus that is on us even greater. With the benefit of the New Testament we have countless examples of what good looks like when it comes to modeling Christ-like behavior. And also countless example, examples of warnings of what, God do, what good doesn't look like. How much more then should we, as a result, be able to avoid the trappings of earthly things? How much more should we be consciously imitating those whose lives, both past and present, are consistent with what we read in Scripture? What are we doing to ensure our lives are consistent with the Word of God? What are we doing to ensure that our God is not our stomach and our glory is? our shame what are we doing to live up to the call that is in front of us does that consistently flow through all of your social circles does it penetrate your alone time does it permeate your relationships in school or at work or with family if you were to ask a candidate from each of those would you hear a consistent message about how they interpret you to live out your lives. Do our lives, friends, brothers, sisters, mirror the likes of the life of Paul, who was consistent with the message he preached? Do we fully grasp the point that we as Christians are called to be like a letter from Christ, known and read by everybody? including those who would live in ignorance consciously or not to the Word of God. Do we really get the need to be genuine imitators together as one of life's transformed and representative of Christ's grace? This is position number one. We are to be imitators. Position number two is that we are to wait Verse 20 and 21 say this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. How, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Verse 20 begins with a but. And this, of course, is to enable the reader to distinguish between the two types of people we have just been speaking about. Those who seek to be good imitators and those who would seek to revel in their own glory. The latter of these have become what Paul describes as enemies of the cross, because instead of accepting a self-denying way of discipleship, they have made their physical desires their God and boasted in what was shameful, setting their minds on earthly things. The but, therefore, lies in contrast to those people. The but is for those who seek to be effective imitators, those who have repented, those who have come to know God's good grace, and those who now realize that their ultimate citizenship is now in heaven and not of earth. Two contrasts, if you like. A contrast between self-denial and self-glory, and a contrast between heaven and earth. And Paul's reminder here for the Christian is for those of us to wait for that which is better. His plea is for us to take up the position of waiting eagerly, of waiting earnestly. Waiting eagerly for what? Waiting eagerly for the return of the one who we are called to represent. Waiting for the return of Christ. Adopt a position, he says, of waiting and of looking. Look beyond temporal gain. Look beyond the human pleasures of the flesh. Look beyond all the things that you see in the here and now. Look beyond position and promotion. Look beyond wealth and material things. Look beyond passions and lusts. Look beyond everything that would distract and detract from the value of you seeing Christ. That's who you are to wait on. Practice patience. Don't capitulate to the whim and pleasure of the here and now. That's the inferred instruction. But taking up a position of waiting isn't easy. It's not something our society and culture are particularly good at. We all struggle to wait. Our world is geared toward instant service, toward immediate results. Technology is forever increasing our unbridled thirst for immediacy. We can watch what we want, when we want. We can skip the ads. We can skip sections and episodes. We can pay for things on pre-release. We can have artificial intelligence write our essays. We can mass uh, kitchens, pre-prepare our meals. We can have our coffee delivered to our door even before we know that we've run out. Everything, everywhere is leaning toward bigger, louder faster the art of waiting or the need to wait is diminishing or so we think then we rehear paul say these words we eagerly await a savior from there the lord jesus christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body does that not make us wait to pause? To wait on a savior. To wait on someone who has the power over everything. Everything under his control. All kings and rulers. All philosophies and cultures. All forces of nature. Things on earth and things beyond this earth. All at the snap of his fingers. To wait on someone who will transform these lowly bodies into heavenly bodies. To wait on someone who will transfer or transform these bodies that are not to be despised, but they are a sign of our lowly condition. They are subject to pain, are they not? And suffering and weakness. And therefore, Christ's promise is to give us glorious bodies. Bodies that are to be raised immortal, imperishable, 1 Corinthians 15 and 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your victory? This is why we are to wait. We are to wait for the great rescuing king. We are to wait for the one who is to clothe us, imperishable, immortal, Is that not worth a position adopting? Is there anything that even comes close to being within a whisper of that what is promised here in Philippians? Does this not surpass all life's fleeting pleasures that we desire? Does it cause us to stop just now and to reflect? To reflect on our ambitions, our priorities, our posture. Is it geared towards the fulfillment of things seen? Or is our posture hunched and primed like a sprinter at the start of a hundred metre race, waiting for the bang of Christ's return and the eternal, impermeable medal of a redeemed body? We are to position ourselves to imitate. We are to position ourselves to wait. And now, thirdly and finally, we are to position ourselves to stand firm. Verse one of chapter four. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. Every time we, we hear a, a, a for or a therefore or a because in scripture, we should think about it carefully. It's likely that we'll find that God is explaining himself and his instructions to his children. The command in this particular passage of text is for us to position ourselves to stand firm. And because a therefore precedes this command, it suggests to us that it is written, what is written in the previous verses is the reason or the rationale for such a command. Why stand firm? Well, we should stand firm for the same reason that we are to imitate and for the same reason that we are to wait, which is to recognize that our citizenship is not of this earth, but of heaven. And it's the glory of heaven that is to outweigh any challenge or burden or struggle that we face right now. You see, Paul has woven together these three positions. These three participative positions of imitating and waiting and standing firm to give us very practical instruction for how we should live out a life cognizant of what glory lies ahead. And he is desperate. He is desperate for us to see it. He was desperate for the people of Philippi to see it. You get a real sense for the depth of, of Paul's feeling toward that particular church church family in this final verse of our text for at the beginning of the verse you have him very explicitly saying that he loves them therefore my brothers whom I love and at the end of the verse incidentally the very same sentence he calls them beloved perhaps if you were to read it in the King James version you see it even clearer therefore my brethren dearly beloved and longed for my crown and my joy So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Beloved twice. This depth of of feeling and emotional attachment to his church family reinforces those initial observations of verse 17. That idea of joining as one, of coming together, being part of a loving church family that imitates and waits and now stands firm together. And as you think of that position of standing firm together or standing fast, you quite probably think up an image that resembles togetherness. Perhaps you think of a, an image of people standing together facing down a particular challenge. The Rugby World Cup these past few weeks, shoulder to shoulder at the anthems, or locked together in the scrum, supported by the weight of those beside and behind, pushing together against the opposing force, desperate not to yield territory or to be spun round. That's a metaphorical example of what we see here in verse 1. That's the plea. That's the position we are to adopt, a position of resilience and fortitude, of integrity and of unwavering, dedication to the truth that we now know and the very reason that paul makes a point of this is that he knows that there are many things in this world that would seek to dilute to disrupt or to knock us off the truth on which we stand and if we're knocked off that truth then we can't stand at all Isaiah 7 and verse 9, and I paraphrase, says this. If you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. There isn't an option in taking up this position. This verse doesn't say, make an effort to stand firm. It doesn't say, try your best to not let your feet be moved. No, it says, stand firm, hold fast grip with all your might and being to the possession that you now identify as your citizenship your colors are now that of heaven you are a flag bearer of that kingdom and like a knight on a defensive wall you are to stand there yielding no ground for your feet stand on what is true you wait on something that is glorious and you imitate a life that is, marks a life marked by grace. Abraham Lincoln said, be sure you put your feet in the right place, then stand firm. That is Paul's call to us. The right place for your feet is at the cross of Jesus, standing in the streams of his grace. When you place your feet there, dig in On that sure and firm foundation. And dig in as a church family together. To uphold between us all that which is called in Ephesians 2. Worthy of the calling to which we have been called. To do so with humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with each other in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Church we will face waves We will face deprecation. We will face views contrary to our own. We will face, and of this I have no doubt, increasing persecution. We will face great challenge to the exclusivity that we hold of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. We will face great self doubt and ridicule at the hands of others. We will not be popular. We will be prone to wonder and to grumble and to fear. But Paul says we are to see each other as our crown and our joy. Stand firm, brethren. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. Stand firm because your citizenship is now of heaven. Take these three positions of imitating, of waiting and standing firm and plant them against the backdrop of knowing that your heavenly citizenship makes for an imperishable, immortal body by the grace of Christ. Hold me. Hold others. Hold yourself accountable to these positions because that grace that is made available to us is more than we can ever really fathom or imagine. We're going to close our time together now by by singing a prayer together. We're going to sing, um, Speak O Lord. And traditionally we would have this before we look at the word together, but there are some lyrics in here that are very relevant to what we've just been considering this morning. In relation to the position of imitating, speak, O Lord, shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. To the position of waiting, speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. To the position of standing firm, Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And by grace, we'll stand on your promises. Let us sing this prayer together for his glory and for your good. And at the end of that song, our time together this morning will be over. Thank you.